Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by prior cashman Seth Lieberman. He's the chair of the firm's bankruptcy reorganization and creditors' rights group, as well as the co-chair of their corporate trust practice. The firm is a frequent appearance on DebtWire's mandate leaderboards, and Seth is a repeat super lawyer's name. Some of his recent work includes representing indenture trustees in the cases of SVB Financial, Diamond Sports, and National Cinema Media, just to name a few. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off just talking a little bit about you at first. So what originally drew you to the field of law and then from there into restructuring? Sure. So as to law, it's an interesting story. Um, When I was in college, I went to James Madison University down in Virginia. In the summer after my sophomore year, I took an internship with the corporate office of the American Arbitration Association. This is back in 1997. And at the time, I didn't think that an internship like that would be as life-changing as it ended up being. And it was life-changing because it afforded me the opportunity to work alongside the senior officers of the American Arbitration Association and see firsthand what mediators and arbitrators do. And while there are exceptions to every rule, it became evident to me over that summer that most of the neutrals that I was working with had law degrees and practiced law at some point in their lives. So I thought that this was something I could see myself doing one day, and law school became an option. And sure enough, after working for a few years after undergrad, including one year working for the Washington, D.C. office of JAMS as a case manager, it became clear to me that I wanted to become a lawyer. As to being interested in bankruptcy or restructuring, I took a a summer associate position uh, now 20 years ago in the summer of 2003 at a a larger New Jersey law firm called Riker Danzig. Um, And at the time at Riker, uh, there were no rotations per se. You would just get dribs and drabs of work from different departments. And I received a good number of assignments from the bankruptcy group. And at the time, it became an area of law that was very interesting to me, in large part because the bankruptcy group worked with a lot of different areas in the firm, IP, family, corporate. You had to really become a master of all trades, so to speak, in understanding different areas of the law and the intersection with bankruptcy. And not by just sheer coincidence, that bankruptcy group also uh, had a lot of members that played summer softball. And I was a softball aficionado two decades ago. And so there was a good overlap between the members of the group and yours truly, both work-wise and extracurricular-wise. And so it was a natural fit. And that's how I found my way into that group. Yeah, absolutely. What was your position on the softball team? (laughs) Uh, Second base. Oh man, just a little bit over from the hot corner, but that's a tough spot. So looking at your background with arbitration, mediation, and neutrals, obviously those are things that play a really big role in bankruptcy. It's all about deals. Do you think that played into your decision at all to really pursue the field? It did. It most certainly did. And it's actually more relevant today than it ever has been. You know, while bankruptcy since the day I started, as you indicated, has always been about deal making, I think certainly the role of mediation or arbitration um, in large chapter 11s is more, if not, is more prevalent nowadays uh, than it's ever been. So it's there's really a nice marriage between the two. Yeah, absolutely. The next question is, finding yourself at Prior Cashman, what do you think is the reason that you found such a home for yourself at that firm out of any of them? 
Well, it's, it's been a great 15 years here. And I can't believe I'm saying it. I've been here for 15 years, but it's been a wonderful 15 years. You know, I found my way here because I was looking to move to a midsize New York law firm. There aren't many midsize New York law firms. Prior had a great bankruptcy group at the time in 2008. When I was interviewing here, they were anticipating, I think, uh, the inevitable deluge of what 2008 was. Um, I think most people recognized that there would be a real uptick in restructuring at that time. So I thought the firm, the group specifically, was well positioned to take on a lot of that work. And so when I started here in the spring of 08, sure enough, my first two cases that I worked on here were representing indenture trustees in the Tropicana and Asarco bankruptcies. And just a number of months later, you know, Lehman collapsed and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And that does a lovely dovetail into the next question I've got for you, which is your practice does heavily skew towards representation of indenture trustees. So I'm wondering if that was just kind of a natural byproduct of your representations and now it's mostly what you do or found your way there on purpose and kind of what are the unique challenges or issues that face that particular corner of working and restructuring? As to how we got here and how my practice has developed that way, you know, when I was at Riker as a junior associate, I was fortunate enough to represent some of the larger trustees in large chapter 11s in New Jersey. This is going back 04, 05, 06, 07. And these were some of the larger trustee banks. And so when I was looking to make a move and prior had a large uh, corporate trust and indenture trustee practice, there was a really nice fit. And that's only grown since that time over the past 15 years. We're now representing the fault side corporate trust matters, takes up most and sometimes all of my time. It's a unique practice. Uh, Most bankruptcy practitioners out there uh, don't do this work. And we pride ourselves on doing almost exclusively this work. And it's unique and it has unique challenges. We have a client and that's always the first and foremost priority here at Prior is making sure that our trustee client, their rights are protected, risk is minimized in connection with the transaction. Unlike a lot of other representations in large chapter 11s, they don't necessarily have a pecuniary interest in the outcome. My clients aren't lenders in a credit facility. They haven't uh, lent money in connection with an indenture. They are the trustee or agent as the case may be. So there's a balance there between obviously being mindful first and foremost of my client, being mindful of the underlying bondholders and lenders and their respective interests. And then oftentimes in a non-default context, you know, we are providing services to the issuer or the company itself. And we always have to be mindful of the fact that in providing those services to the issuer, we have even more duties. So it's sometimes a challenge balancing both having the client itself and making sure that they're protected, being mindful that holders or lenders' rights are protected, and being mindful of the fact that we're providing services to the issuer at times and balancing what at times can be you know, a, a delicate tightrope that we're walking. Right. It's a little bit more of a dual track, two-way street than most representations would be. Exactly. Especially given bondholder classes can be quite wide and large in a way that, you know, typical lender syndicates might not be. Do you think that creates any any additional friction or difficulty? I don't know that it, it creates any more friction or difficulty. I think that it may create different challenges. You know, we're involved in cases where 
we're unaware of who our underlying bondholders are. We may not know who they are. There are other cases where we're aware of certain bondholders. They may be retail bondholders, as they're sometimes called in the market, moms and pops. And then obviously a lot of these larger chapter 11s, we're dealing with the most sophisticated funds in the world. And I find that to be a challenge, but it's something that I think helps differentiate our practice from some others, where it's a challenge that we welcome because we feel like we have the ability to represent trustees in connection with any type of underlying holders. Turning to another corner of the practice, you've also spent a good amount of time having clients who are members of unsecured creditors committees. And I'm curious how you approach representing a creditor as part of a separate constituency where the group itself has its own representation. Like how do you how do you maintain that kind of vigorous advocacy when there's multiple layers like that? It's some of my favorite type of work that we do. We've had the opportunity to represent clients on the largest of committees over the past 15 years. And on the trustee side, deals like Caesars or iHeart, SVB come to mind on the non-trustee side. And we run the Neiman committee. We're on the Celsius committee right now. You know, working with those professionals, you know, the bankruptcy bar is really such a collaborative bar that I find that the professionals that we hire in connection with those engagements as our committee professionals are those that, in my opinion, I welcome that representation. I welcome that collaboration. And I think if we're all doing our job right, we're generally rowing in the same direction. Absolutely. Uh, We'll get to Celsius a little bit more later. But one other kind of broad-based question is, according to our restructuring database here at DebtWire, we're seeing about a 36, so a little bit over a third uptick in U.S. filings over the first half of 2022. You have any any theories on what might be driving that or where that trend line is going for the remainder of the year? Well, I don't prognosticate. <laughs> I've, sure. I've lost, uh, you know, each time I predict that I'm proven to be mortal. I think the first half of this year, there's obviously an uptick, but I think it's important to put it against the backdrop of the last few years. You know, obviously, beginning with the pandemic in, say, mid-2020, there was a great uptick. I think every restructuring professional will tell you about that six, eight, 10 month period. But then yeah, there were, I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> then there was a demonstrable slowdown. And I don't think anyone can deny that. So when we start talking about what the first six months of 23 looks like against maybe what last year was or 21 was, I think it's important to recognize that we're coming off one or two very slow years in the restructuring world. What caused this? Obviously, rates, inflation, all the things that you read are the things that I read. And whether or not this continues, as I said, your guess is as good as mine. You know, if I believe what I read, it's that we're not going to necessarily have the second half of 2020, which is not a bad thing for our mentality, I guess, but it may be a continued slow progression of restructurings for some time, which at least those in the community would probably welcome. I don't predict about the future. I think most of what people are saying in the marketplace is that while no one is necessarily anticipating a repeat of the second half of 2020 in terms of proliferation of restructurings, most commentators out there are suggesting that we're going to have a consistent, maybe longer term uptick 
gradual in restructurings. Sure. Makes perfect sense. To be fair, I think it's kind of in our nature to want to prognosticate that are just not curbed at all by success or failure rates. <laughs> I agree. I hear all of my colleagues telling me all of the time what the next month or two will look like. And I'm always amazed that they can predict the future. Yeah. I'm always tempted to break out a little notepad and let's see where we're at in six months. <laughs> so I want to get a little bit into the uh, into some of your big, uh, some of your big cases. Uh, First, kind of encompassing a few. You've done, you did work on Malincrot. You mentioned Celsius and SVB. Those are all cases that have a really significant involvement level from regulators, state agencies. You know, you've got the got the SEC, the CFTC. I'm wondering how that additional layer of complexity presents in your practice. Well, I think there are several ways that it makes it more complex. I'd probably give two examples. One in which is you have a certain number of cases that are out there, I think especially in crypto, where the government's involvement is obviously quite necessary. We see them involved in all Chapter 11s, crypto included. But I think there's a good sense out there that the nature of these cases, the fact that crypto is still new, relatively speaking, has presented its own challenges to the government and at times has provided some difficulty in court. I'll give an example there. While we weren't involved, at least not on the front line, I think it's been widely reported about the SEC's position in connection with the Voyager case. And in that case, as I understand it, they objected and continually objected to a plan, which was eventually overruled by Judge Wiles. And it was based on what I think the SEC was at least characterized as saying they felt uncomfortable with certain transactions associated with the plan and asked the court to deny confirmation. It was, for lack of a better term, deemed as a nebulous confirmation objection. It drew the ire of the court. I think that's the word I remember. And I think that in fairness to the SEC, it was a genuine objection. They, they clearly didn't feel comfortable with what was otherwise contemplated in the plan. But they were probably operating in an environment where at least the law wasn't quite clear to them. And they had to resort to an objection that wasn't met with open arms by the court. I think we're seeing in certain cases, the government maybe struggling a little bit with some of these areas. And this is new. This is new to all of us, but it's new to the government as well. The other side of it, and you mentioned regulators, we've seen in a lot of these cases an issue where you might need regulators signing off on post-confirmation transactions in connection with emergence. So my recollection was, I believe in Malincrot, certainly in Intelsat, there were a number of conditions precedent in the plan that were contingent on regulator review and ultimate sign-off. What that ended up resulting in was a relatively large gap, so to speak, between confirmation and emergence. And that's not new. That's been around for a long time. But what ends up happening in these cases, especially given uncertainty in the larger economy, global uncertainty, uncertainty in markets, dare I say uncertainty with respect to exit financing, is it injects another level of uncertainty into a post-confirmation pre-emergence debtor with respect to timing, 
to financial health and to viability and potentially uh, what we may see in some of these cases, a 22, because maybe they're not able to emerge as quickly as they would have liked. So I think the involvement of regulators in connection with a lot of these deals, especially as it pertains to effective date transactions, is something that is a necessary evil, but is nonetheless yet a further obstacle for some of these Chapter 11 debtors to try to um, exit from bankruptcy. Where do you think on the on the spectrum of precarious positions that a restructuring company goes through, where do you think that phase between confirmation and the effective date, assuming it doesn't happen within like 24 hours, where do you think that places on the range of precariousness? Well, I think with each day that you're in chapter, it's probably an extra day that a company doesn't want to be in chapter, right? And so, you know, we're involved in a lot of cases where, the, where there's a virtual overlap between confirmation and emergence. The company side counsel and their other professionals have done whatever they need to, to essentially line themselves out to get out of bankruptcy immediately after get confirming. But a lot of times, as I said, it's out of their hands. And the confirmation is a gating issue, so to speak. They need to check that box and then they've got a lot of hard work ahead of them. That again, I think the more time that you're in chapter, even post-confirmation, the more risk that things can go sideways. You know, I, I know in one of our deals that we were involved in, there was a real decrease in capital in the capital markets in the several months between confirmation and an effective date. And it affected the company's exit financing. It affected their ability uh, to uh, get an exit loan, the terms on which they were able to procure a loan, all of which, dare I say, if they were able to exit quicker, would have been otherwise alleviated. Absolutely. Uh, One more thing on Celsius, then I want to jump to a different case. So Voyager and Celsius are kind of the mature US crypto cases at this point. We have recently seen Voyager go through what can only be called an interesting confirmation process. As someone who is near to Celsius, I'm curious if there are any kind of lessons or major takeaways that you're hoping to take back to your case that you think will help secure your exit. I don't represent Celsius. Um, Kirkland does. But as 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 representing party in interest. a party in interest, <laughs> co-chair of the committee, I think there are a few takeaways that I don't know that are they're limited to, to crypto, but you know, you know, we're at a stage in Celsius where it's unlike Voyager, where you know Voyager, you're at plan confirmation, the plan's been confirmed. We're not there in Celsius, but as you said, it's mature, so to speak. I think there are probably a few takeaways. One of which is it would be helpful, I think, for the plan proponent, the company here, to get on their side a majority of the constituents. I think they've done a good job of that. There are a number of settlements that are uh, memorialized uh, that can be seen on the docket. And I'm not going to give my commentary on them other than to say that they have, uh, I think, done a a nice job of uh, corralling many of the interested parties in the case. So when the company presents its plan, it's going to be speaking with many of the economic actors. I think the other takeaway, dare I say, from Voyager, and it's probably the anecdote that I'm familiar with and referred to earlier, is it would behoove the company, the plan proponent here, to try to iron out issues that may otherwise be anticipatable from the government and through governmental agencies. Now, we could say that in any Chapter 11, 
I think it's especially applicable here, given the discomfort that the SEC, among others, demonstrated in connection with Voyager confirmation. I would imagine that the company will make any and all efforts to ensure that each of the governmental agencies are heard. And dare I say that their objections are at least attempted to be resolved uh, in advance of confirmation. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, the next question is going to be about SVB, and it kind of tracks back to we have touched on interest rates a little bit. The SVB collapse happened really, really fast, and it came as a surprise to some people. In retrospect, I think a lot of people understand what happened, but I'm curious if you think that it's sort somewhat of a unique situation or whether we should start considering it kind of a canary in the coal mine when it comes to the financial sector. I think it's still hard to say. And the reason why I say that is because we're still seeing fallout from SVB. Uh, We're seeing fallout from SVB in connection with other banks that are either the subject of potential takeovers, uh, the subject of folding themselves. There was at least one other one almost contemporaneous with SVB that got a rescue from, I think it was New York. Uh, We're seeing similar fallouts as a result of what is called the SVB collapse, You know, it feels like an almost weekly occurrence when I read about a large chapter and I'm reading the first day deck and I start reading about the SVB effect, so to speak, how the SVB collapse somehow affected this company's capital structure, this company's... Right, SVB lender or their cash accounts were there, something like that. That's exactly right. And we might not have been privy to that prior to the filing, but it's much in what occurred in the retail world not too long ago where every first aid deck would quote the so-called Amazon effect. You know, the SVB effect uh, seems to be similar here. So it's hard to say, you know, whether or not this is the first domino or the one and only domino or what type of ripple effect it will have. I think it's fair to say, though, that with each week, with each chapter, we're seeing uh, what may otherwise have been unforeseeable as a result of the SVB collapse. So next, we've been talking a lot about kind of the effect of external forces broadly on on cases that you've handled. And I want to really briefly ask you what the effect is of such heavy involvement from the commissioner's office in Diamond Sports. It's kind That's kind of a unique... It's not a regulator, it's not a state agency, but it kind of exer- it exerts this really strong hold over the direction of the case, almost a veto power. So I'm curious what your experience has been with that. Well, I think it's fair to say that early on, it was contentious. It's public, <laughs> it's public that there was a um, multi-day hearing in connection with those agreements, and uh, Judge Lopez eventually ruled on that, that issue. It remains to be seen what effect that will have on the case as a whole. The case is still in its relatively nascent stages. No plan has been proposed. There's no disclosure statement on file. And so what, if any, traction the company makes with the commissioner's office in this case still remains to be seen. And to the extent that they do not make peace, the effect of that also is, I think, an important factor in the case and something that we certainly have our eyes on. But along the lines of, I can't predict what tomorrow brings, I certainly can't predict you know, what the commissioner's role and 
status in the case will mean in terms of the remainder of chapter 11 here. Just as unpredictable as a baseball game, you could say. Exactly right. Well, Seth, it's been really great talking to you this afternoon. That's all I've got for you. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts and taking the time. Thank you for having me, Andy. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple, and you can find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. We'll see you next time.